Social justice means applying the law equally to all people. But in practice, that doesn't always happen. I'm John Gonzalez. I'm here at my law partner, Jack Derora. We practice law. We seek social justice. On this show, we reveal the conflict between the two. You know, for a while, it was just us in the office over a cup of coffee talking about the news of the day with social justice issues dominating our culture. Our focus became how do we as lawyers make a difference? And now it's not just us. Today we have Mark Weicker. He's here to discuss school vouchers and the school voucher system. Mark is an attorney in Columbus who focuses on school law, representing students, teachers, university faculty, and administrators. Welcome, Mark. Thank you. Glad to be here. Jack, uh, talking about charter schools, you can't help but talk about ECOT, right? First thing that comes to mind. There are so many aspects of ECOT, um, and just full disclosure, we had a client that was involved in the, in ECOT and actually sat for a deposition um, with the um, with the AG's uh, office over uh, some of the aspects of the uh, ECOT case, which there were many. But basically, um, ECOT was accused of. Um, saying that it had more students than it actually had because it gets paid by the state of Ohio per student, right? I think it was accused of just bilking money. (laughs) Let's make it simple. Well, the question I have, though, is why do we need to have charter schools if we already have public schools that are financed by the public? And maybe, uh, Mark, you can answer that. Yeah, sure. Uh, You know, it started out really as an experiment, uh, I think, in Massachusetts, there were some educators themselves, public educators, who were um, interested in uh, maybe uh, a better use of public funds, and they thought maybe that better use could be if you send a couple teachers out and let them give them some freedom of curriculum and uh, let them try some new things and uh, trying to break free a little bit from the uh, the structures of regular public education. So I, I think it had, and you know for all intents and purposes, you know, good intentions. And, um, you know, that really spawned the movement. That was early, uh, or mid-90s, and then uh, late 90s into the 2000s, really the charter school movement uh, took a hold and uh, started here in Ohio. And that's, it really had the same, I guess, good intentions or philosophy in that they, you know, you um, allow a school to start, still a public school in most cases, in most states, uh, allow those schools to, to start, you know, uh, they're subject to a lot less laws. Um, still, you know, uh, again, uh, they are public agencies, so, uh, you know, subject to open records, but, uh, you know, most of them don't have unions. Most of them don't um, you know, have teacher tenure. Uh, so there's a lot more freedom, freedom of curriculum for charter schools. And I think, you know, the idea was, okay, let's, you know, break the mold a little bit. Um, see what a little bit of funding can do and, uh, you know, see what happens from there. It's um, interesting when we hear the word freedom of curriculum with our um, Ohio public schools, because I think our legislature is uh, slowly eroding what that might mean. And do those laws, and Jack and I have done podcasts on the laws, uh, do those laws affect charter schools? Not not always. Uh, Now, charters, again, do have a lot more freedom than traditional public schools, and it depends on the, any given law. But you know, there's a 
a published list out there of you know 150 different laws that don't apply to charters in Ohio that do apply to public schools, and I'm sure there's more than that. That's just kind of uh, the most important statutes. But um, you know, by and large, uh, there is a lot more freedom, and it depends on the law whether or not it would it apply to charters. But really, the focus of the legislature, at least statewide here has been to restrict what public schools can do, traditional public schools, brick and mortar schools, uh, and uh, by and large, charters have avoided that that type of scrutiny. I had a uh, client years ago that was a principal at the um, at a charter school, and um, it, what I represented him for had nothing to do with his employment, but he used to complain because the largest part of his budget was paying the rent. And he couldn't get money for teachers and he couldn't get money to what to first, you know, hire them and then to retain them that once they got a couple of years under their belt, they would move on because now they had the experience. But he was always complaining that his charter school was less of a school and more of just a way for the landlord to make money. Have you heard that uh, criticism with respect to the business model? Yeah, absolutely. You know, um, and that's where some of the problems with Ohio's charters really start. It's because the structure is um, uh, a little bit chaotic. There's conflicts like almost built into the structure of charter schools. And I would imagine in that situation with your client that he was probably paying the management company of that charter school, uh, which was probably the same person who founded the school. Um, so it to, to back up a step, it's um, important to understand the, the way the statutes were written in Ohio, late 90s again, uh, early 2000s, were that, so the charters are really made up of three entities. Uh, you have a nonprofit, which is a school, and that's by all intents and purposes just a shell. I mean, it, it you, you, you file it with the Secretary of State. By and large, it doesn't have any assets. Uh, and so that those um, nonprofit schools are typically founded by somebody who also owns a management company or starts a management company contemporaneous to the founding of the school. And the management company is a for-profit. And the management company owns you know, all of the assets, typically the building. That's why I say your client was probably mm-hmm. paying rent to the management company. They hire and fire teachers. They own you know, the computers or they send out the computers to students if it's an e-school. Um, and uh, that really, uh, they hire administrators um, and staff the, the school. So uh, again, the management company is really running or operating the school. The problem with that is that the management company is a private company, not subject to public records laws, not subject to you know whether the the uh, founder or owner of the management company makes donations, you know, to certain legislators. Um, so, you know that 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 is that was part of the whirlwind with ECOT. A really big part of it is that their founder Bill Lager uh, also owned the management company and just you know raked to the, the the public for millions and millions of dollars. And I mentioned three eight or I'm sorry three um, entities. So we talked about the school itself, which is really a shell, the management company. And then the third is a sponsor. All charters in Ohio have to have a sponsor. Again, good intentions. Sponsors are typically educational service centers, which are the old county boards of education. They service schools. So uh, they're still they're public agencies or they can be any other nonprofit. When the, when the statutes were written, it could be any other nonprofit. So even churches 
uh, have used to uh, to sponsor charter schools. And then any public school district can be a sponsor of a charter school. And the sponsor um, is supposed to monitor compliance with the laws and then has the ability to suspend or revoke the charter of the chartered school. And I should mention, too, that chartered schools in Ohio are called community schools by statute for whatever reason, but um, nationwide they're known as charters. So the sponsor, um, you know, um, what they do, again, they're, they're supposed to monitor compliance. That was a big problem leading up to ECOT with all charter schools is really what they do is say we're the sponsor and then take, you know, 1% to 3% of the revenue, which is really funding from the state, and they, they collect that funding and take a fee. And you can imagine some of these small nonprofits that were sponsors were taking some hefty fees. Um, the um, Lucas County Educational Service Centers, who sponsored ECOT, and you know, you can imagine the funding that they got from taking one to three percent of um, you know the revenue that the, the the school received from the state. So you have these three agencies, three entities, and it's you know uh, a complex puzzle on where the money's going and uh, who's uh, supposed to be in charge. Who initially who initially gets that funding? Does it go to the management organization or the sponsor? It goes to the school. So, okay. yeah, the funding does go to the school. And then the school, when they have their expenses like rent, um, and when they have expenses like personnel, again, those those teachers oh. maybe have, uh, they're, you know, they're staffed, the school is staffed uh, by the management company. So it's just being funneled right over to the management company, rent and, and, and personnel. Okay. Yeah, I, I wasn't paying attention. I'm sorry. So the, the school is, in essence, a pass-through for the money. Uh, yeah, 100%. And that was a typical structure for charters. And it still is. I mean, that is still the structure today. And you can see the inherent baked-in problems because, again, the founder of the school could be the founder of the for-profit management company. My understanding, Mark, is that these schools aren't um, all over the state. They're concentrated in, in more of the uh, urban areas. Uh, is there a reason for that? Yeah, there is. And uh, when the law was first passed, um, it uh, only allowed charters, certain types of charters, to open in um, lower-performing school districts. So by nature, mm. they opened in the urban areas, in the bigger districts where um, you know, there were lots of students to choose from and the schools weren't doing well. So just uh, historically, now there's a little bit more freedom to open in places throughout the state now, and there are a few more e-schools, which are really statewide. Uh, so it's not necessarily as true as it used to be, but um, uh, now I, I still think today about 80% of the um, students in charter schools are in urban districts. I read, I can't remember where, that charter schools can be either profit or non-profit, but what I'm hearing from you is that the management company is almost always a for-profit entity. That's right. Yeah. So if there is a nonprofit out there, at what level would we see that? Well, you would see the nonprofit in the school entity structure itself and uh. maybe in the sponsor because, again, nonprofits can sponsor the school. Um, but by and large, those management companies are 100% for profit. The school funding, is that uh, the same school funding formula for the public schools or is it um, done differently? It is uh, similar in regards to the per-pupil funding. So um, it's a good question because it is true that charter schools aren't 
uh, at parity or on par with traditional public schools with funding. And they'll make, you know, charter advocates will make that point all the time. So, uh, you know, if you attend, a, you know, a suburban district here in Columbus, the school gets um, per pupil funding from the State Department of Education. And that's so, so per student, they get, you know, a dollar amount that's fixed, uh, somewhere between 7,500 and 10,000, depending on the budget. and. Um, and sometimes more for special education students, it's more, but it's a per pupil funding. So they count the number of students who are attending. You know, if you reside in the district and attend there, the school gets the funding. Well, the other thing that traditional public schools get is real estate tax dollars. So, you know, for all the commercial and residential real estate in the district, a, a portion of that, a, a decent portion goes to the school district. And so even if a, a student resides in the district and transfers out to a charter or or elects to attend a charter or a private school for that matter um, th with a charter the, the per pupil funding follows the student to the charter so that's why charters are tuition free uh, in that you know the funding just is redirected but none of that real estate tax money follows the student that's right yeah and um, and again advocates and lobbyists on behalf of the charters will say you know that's unfair and in fact, there is now kind of a small stipend that's paid to charters um, in addition to the per pupil funding, and they're advocating for more. So more and more of the funding that would tip, you know, typically go to the residential school district is uh, being redirected to charters. How do these students, um, let's just take a student that's in the Columbus public, uh, if that, uh, if those parents or the student wants to go to a charter school in Central Ohio, how does that work? You you contact the charter school. Most charter schools, um, again, they they may restrict uh, either by enrollment or by county, uh, but so long as the charter school is open for enrollment, I mean, you um, you enroll there, and the charter school will request your records from Columbus City, and in uh, all intents and purposes, under the uh, you know, uh, EMIS or, uh, you know, electronic management system, you're transferred and the funds will be redirected to the to the charter school. Is there some capacity limit? Uh, not everybody can go to a charter school or is am I incorrect in that? No, that's right. Um, uh, so, you know, in a hypothetical situation, if charter schools were big enough to accept all the students from Columbus City Schools, they would mm -hmm. and they could um, because, again, it's just a redirecting of funding. It's not necessarily a... Uh, there's no cap uh, on how much of that funding can be redirected. But, now, it, um, you know, um, in reality, most schools, you know, will have, you know, just capacity limits based on the building or classroom size or whatever their, um, you know, um, their curriculum model, model would be. So there's I thought I had read that there was some tie to being at a disadvantaged school in order to go to a charter school. But I'm not hearing you say that. Uh, that's right. Yep. That is. Um, so now most charter schools exist in underperforming urban districts, uh, but there's not necessarily a criteria that you you have to you know uh, reside in one of those districts or attend one of those districts to uh, to enroll in a charter school. They really set their enrollment criteria. A lot of it's set by the curriculum. So if uh, I'm say, I'm talking about charters, um, they uh, you know sometimes they have a, a curriculum based on arts or music or you know college prep. Uh, it may be based in uh, physical education is one that exists today. Mm -hmm. uh, so, um, you know, it's curriculum focused. So they may have some, you know, um, enrollment requirements in that regard. Geographically, they may limit it to um, to the county. 
Um, one thing is that transportation is provided by the public school to the mm. charter school. Mm. So there are practical limitations on whether or not the student can get there or whether or not, if it's more than 30 minutes, the traditional public school doesn't have to bus the student to the, to the charter school. When Gonzo and I were talking about having you on the show, I had said to him, you know, my sense is that the charter schools just are not performing well on the whole. Now, that was just my sense from reading articles. But then I looked up and I read this thing from the Stanford's, Stanford University Center for Research and Educational Outcomes, published a few years back. And it said, and this was for Ohio in particular, no progress in the quality of education over the last 10 years in Ohio. And with the brick and mortar schools, the kids did a little better with reading, did worse in math, and the online schools did worse for reading and math. What's up with this? Right. So um, the quality of education being delivered with charters, uh, I will say first, again, starting in 2000s, moving into even 2010 and 2015, has been absolutely abysmal. I mean, um, and ECOT, certainly the ECOT situation shined a light on that, um, in that ECOT's graduation rate, you know, at the time of closure and leading up to the time of closure was about 40%. Now, um, uh, a more recent study from the Fordham Foundation has indicated that uh, charters in Ohio, and you have to, of course, look at who's doing the study, um, advocates for charters, um, have indicated that those uh, reading and math scores are now much more on par with those districts that are comparable. So they're looking at <clears throat> urban districts who are already largely you know, underperforming, but uh, a lot of advocates for charters will say they're better. Now, there is a, a long history to that, you know, again, especially involving ECOT, in that what happened after the ECOT scandal, um, you know, uh, uh, the public recognized, I think legislators recognized, a lot of them had their hands dirty and taking money and speaking to ECOT graduations and, you know, um, it, it, it recognized that uh, the, really the state got bilked for money. and. Uh, there was quite a consolidation after ECOT, so I think around um, uh, maybe a hundred, I take that back, uh, um, dozens of sponsoring entities were closed. And then over a hundred, since ECOT, over a hundred different charter schools were closed by those sponsors by and large, the, the remaining sponsors, if they were underperforming. Remember, the sponsors have the ability then to either suspend or revoke the charter of the chartered school. So there was a constriction, and I think that has led to better scores um, and better performance by the remaining charters, because really the worst of the worst got eliminated, including ECOT, which was a monstrous school, by the way. They had 15,000 students at the time they closed. And um, even in ECOT's first year, um, around um, 2000, they ended up with 3,000 students making it in its first year the largest high school. So, And by the time they were done, 15,000 students a year, which was the largest in the country, um, were going and they were getting the funding for those students, which, as you know, largely turned out to be um, really a, a misrepresentation of the number of students who are showing up every day. So there has been, it has been corrected, but it's, 
far from good to answer your question, Jack. It's just, um, you know, the performance isn't where it needs to be. And, and uh, students and parents got to be cautious about, you know, enrolling in a charter school and, and knowing what their performance is. When I was um, doing a little bit of research, I found the report card. I don't know if it's the 2022 or the 2023 report card. And um, if I understood it correctly, they gave uh, stars, one star to five star based on different things, you know, uh, academic performance, graduation and stuff. And you could go to any particular school and look up its its report card. And now this wasn't a comparison to the public schools. This was These were just charter schools. And they were, for the most part, terrible. A lot of ones and twos. And you, you got to think, you know, is it, does it go back to this incentive that the management company uh, has to make money, you know, where they're going to pay teachers less. And anytime you, you pay um, professionals in general less, you get less qualified professionals. I'm not saying there aren't really good teachers and really dedicated teachers in charter schools, but it reminds me back in the 80s when I got out of law school, so I'm going to date myself, there was a heavy recruitment on Wall Street in law schools, and that's where you could make some money. Oh, now, yeah. Now, they weren't recruiting at Capital University, but, you know, Yale, Harvard. And um, so, you know, articles were written on wherever the most money is, that's where professionals, especially lawyers, tend to gravitate, right? So then you got into the product liability era, and there was a lot of money for lawyers in products liability, so you saw a lot of lawyers going there. Same with medical malpractice. So you start to see the best and the brightest of our profession in these areas that pay the most. Well, the same thing has to be true for teachers. If you pay a lot of money, or I shouldn't say a lot, if you pay you know, a, a good salary, you're gonna get good people. So let me take a guess at this. We have a system that we're funding that underperforms and we keep throwing money at the underperforming system. This could only happen for what for one reason. And I would suppose that one reason is intensive lobbying. Is there another reason? Uh, no, there's really not another reason. Number one, the stat the original statutes, like I mentioned, created this structure which is just fundamentally flawed. And then just to uh, by way of example, I mentioned William Lager, who was the founder of ECOT, also the owner of Altair Management Company. And um, and and in a few years in his time, he was the large, largest individual donor to the GOP who just kept perpetuating the entire um, situation of charters, throwing more money at them. Lots of advocates, lots of, again, like I, mean, I mentioned, lots of people have their hands dirty in the whole perpetuation of school choice and, and online charters especially. But no doubt about it, um, lobbying is a big part of it. Even today for the remaining... Um, you know, um, both uh, management companies and sponsors and charter schools. There's a lot of lobbying, and um, and in fact, there's a lot of information out there about how the lobby is incredibly strong. Surprising. Um, yeah. Remember that quote? That remember that line from Casablanca when the uh, police captain discovers gambling at Rick's place? Yeah. I'm shocked, shocked <laughs> that there's gambling going on here. <laughs> Well, when you think about, um, again, the report card on charter schools, um, is it the type of student that is also, um, you know, drawn to that type of school? I, I thought with ECOT, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, 
part of the, the draw was it was online, so if students had disciplinary problems or issues, you know, um, adjusting uh, to in class, they could they could do it online. And so one of the arguments were, you know, they had more kids that just weren't really getting online to do their work because they weren't going to do their work anyway, whether they're in a public school or not. But is it the, is it the type of student that also affects these scores? Yeah, no doubt about it. And um, uh, remember that they're in underperforming districts, so they're typically um, serving underprivileged students. Again, the, the, the lobby or the industry, the charter industry, will point to that. Um, they'll also point to the fact, like, like you mentioned, uh, that um, the students who attend an online school, maybe they were being bullied, yeah, maybe um, they weren't doing well in traditional public schools, so it gave them an alternative. And they'll um, and, and uh, charter schools will also say they accept a lot of students who are doing really poorly in traditional public schools. So it's a little bit they'll say mm-hmm. it's a little bit skewed in that regard. And uh, and I should say, you know, f- for some students, um, they're um, you know if there's a school for the arts and that's what they want to focus on, that may be better than their traditional public school. Or if they're, you know, facing harassment for some reason or some other issue at school, um, you know, just to change, just having the ability to change the scenery sometimes is better for students. So um, not to say that um, all charters are bad. And like I mentioned earlier, there are lots of variance between the performance. And there are a couple of really good management companies uh, and um, and sponsors who are holding the schools accountable and, and really driving the scores up for their students. Um, KIPP Academy is one, a nationwide charter school. Uh, their, their scores are are, um, uh, are higher and they're managed very well. So it's not to say that it can't be done, but the experiment has just cost billions of dollars since 2000. When we look at it from the student's perspective, um, do the charter schools offer everything else, the extracurriculars, those type of things? Not always, um, but part of the lobby for charter schools is, uh, and this works for homeschooling too, if um, you attend a charter school and they don't offer um, uh, an extracurricular uh, that your traditional public school district of residence offers, you can actually participate at your, your school of residence. So you're allowed to be on the football team if your charter doesn't offer it, or you're allowed to be uh, in any uh, non-credit you know, activity that's offered by your traditional public school district, even though you're attending the charter. You know, the, um, I guess it's the teachers unions and other groups who favor public education point to charter schools as being detrimental to public education. And on an intuitive level, that sort of makes sense to me, but if the public education system is only losing the dollars for the number of students that it no longer teaches, I'm trying to figure out how it hurts public education. Help me with that. Well, it's kind of like a group buying power type thing or okay. collective buying power. Okay. You know, if um, you know if you have half of the students, uh, that would be a pretty dramatic drop. But let's say for the sake of this hypothetical, if you if you have half the students in your class then you have uh, less buying power for teachers, less buying power for equipment and facilities at the public school than you had, you know, uh, when if uh, all of your students that reside in the district attend. Uh, so there, you know, it is a per pupil drop in funding, 
but it uh, really is a reinvestment in charters, and that's just directing funding away. So there, there is a, uh, you know, this the traditional public school districts still receive the real estate tax dollars, so it doesn't all go away. But there are obligations, like I mentioned, with transportation, still transporting the student mm. to the charter school, still allowing the student to participate in extracurriculars. There are other ancillary items that the public school remains, the traditional public school remains responsible for, even though the, uh, the student isn't attending. We think about the alternatives for education for students in Ohio. So we've talked about traditional public schools, charter schools, which if I understand right, they can be all online or remote learning, right? That's right. And as well as the brick and mortar. So what other alternatives then are there? Um, thinking about this. Yeah, so private schools is another option. Um, so this is your parochial or religious schools or non-religious schools. And private schools um, are still chartered by the state, which means they have to follow the state standards for operating. And um, But private schools are not funded by the state. There's no redirection of public funds that go to a charter school when you transfer. So if I go to my local, you know, um, St. John's school or St. Charles here in Columbus, um, then I either pay tuition um, for that entirely, um, or um, there's a, something called the Ed Choice Scholarship, which is uh, something funded by the state for certain students. Um, but for, for private schools, you got to pay tuition. You know, for charter schools, like I mentioned, they're tuition-free, or at least the tuition's paid by that redirection of funding. Um, you know, another couple options, um, there are career technical schools, which largely serve high school students, although they're reaching down into middle school at this point, and career tech schools service multiple school districts, you know, adjacent districts, and they allow students to do, um, you know, uh, take career tech type courses and labs and uh, really to prepare students to continue right into the workforce, but not always. A lot of uh, pre-college programs at career techs. But those are public schools just like traditional public schools funded in largely the same way. Uh, and those students are usually bussed over to the career tech or the vocational school from their high school. And uh, so that's another educational option for students. And then I guess we'd close that out with homeschooling. Yeah, um, that's right. Which is often conflated with e-schooling. You know, um, e-schools are traditionally in the state run are, are charter schools. You know, like ECOT, you know, that's the big one. Ohio Virtual Academy is another one that exists now. Um, Odela, uh, which is another one. I'm not sure what the initials are, but now there are a few of these big charters. A few of them, you know, um, gained in popularity after ECOT closed because the students wanted an, another option for online. Uh, so a lot of these online charter schools grew in popularity when 15,000 students lost their high school when ECOT closed. Before we close, before we close out, let me get a sense for the difference in governing. And here's a quick example. We have the Upper Arlington High School. That principal reports to the Upper Arlington School District Superintendent. St. Charles, that principal reports to whom? There is typically a governing board um, of, the, of the school. Uh -huh. um, so similar in structure, but they're really uh, governed entirely internally. Like the, the private schools have a a lot of discretion. They still, again, have to op uh, operate under the operating standards. But, you know, in terms of whether they accept students, you know, whether they dismiss students, um, you know, due process rights really don't exist for students in 
private schools. So they really make their own rules and then most of the time follow those. Uh, you know, I, I went to a, a Catholic grade school, so we didn't have due process. We had Dominican nuns. <laughs> right. <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> Regardless of whether you're talking about the Upper Arlington High School or St. Charles, both at some point are accountable to the Ohio Department of Education, am I right? That's right, okay. yeah, yep. Um, and you know, teachers have to be licensed in both places. That's true with the charter school too. Teachers have to have a license, which is issued by the Ohio Department of Education. So it's not entirely the wild, wild west, although administrators at charter schools don't have to have an educator's license. So a lot of people who come straight from business or the for-profit world or end up being principals or administrators of, of charter schools. Mark, um, thanks for the um, education on charter schools. Did you like that, Jack? That was very good. Yeah. He, he, was, uh, he was saving that up yeah, all week. Uh, we appreciate you coming. We want to have you back, and we want to talk about uh, vouchers and spend some time on, um, on the uh, religious schools and homeschooling and, and talk about funding and, and then uh, the point you just raised about discipline and due process rights. I'm very interested in that area, too. But thanks for coming in and uh, helping us understand the charter school system in Ohio. Glad to do it. Thanks for asking. Oh, wonderful to have you. Our thanks to WOSU and our sound engineer, Kevin Petrella. If you like what you've heard, tell a friend because we want this to be more than just us. We want it to be all of us. We're going to be back in a week or so. We're bringing Mark back to talk about e-vouchers. Uh, we'll look forward to seeing you then. Until then, so long. So long.